Well, good morning, everyone. We are in a series in First Peter entitled Living Hope, and today I want to talk about hope for leaders. I want to focus on leadership. That's because we live in a leadership-challenged world where dishonesty, ego, greed, sexual harassment are um, way too uh, prevalent, way too common. So this morning what I want to do is I want to attempt to offer a biblical alternative. I want to look at a practical vision of what leadership looks like according to the Bible, according to Christianity. And what I want to do is highlight five traits or five aspects of leadership that emerge from 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, of the five, uh, the first two are common. They're familiar. Uh, The second three, as it relates to leadership, a, a little less uncommon. But frankly, the third one that we will talk about, this third trait, is never mentioned in leadership conversations today. So let's pick it up in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, and also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, Jesus, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because, and here we have a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, God opposes the proud, but shows favor, I prefer, gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour Resist him, standing firm in your faith. Now, Peter is addressing elders. In the Old Testament, elders were community leaders. In the New Testament, they're church leaders. The office of elder in the New Testament is a big deal because as the elders go, so goes the church. But what I want to focus on is the fact that these traits are transferable because what makes for a good elder also makes for a good office manager, a a good parent, politician, a principal. So let's unpack these traits. Traits number one is that leaders care. They care. This is the first part of verse two. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Caring is described here with a common first century metaphor of shepherds. Very common in, in Peter's day. 
And what uh, Peter is saying, a leader is to his people what a shepherd is to his sheep. Now, what does that mean for us today? Well, it means for starters, kind of a a, a basement in this, as C.S. Lewis put it, we see our people as no mere mortals, but people infused with an eternal weight of glory, people created in God's image, who God is sovereignly, using the language of Peter, placed under our care. So we watch over them. We treat them with dignity. We guide them. We protect them. We correct them as a shepherd does sheep. And one of the biggest mistakes, and to admit this just pains me, one of the biggest mistakes I made as a young leader, as a young pastor, is I complained about somebody who played an important role in our church. I was frustrated with this person, and so I complained about this person, and I did it behind his back. And one day, I was talking to somebody outside our church who was a leader, and I respected, and I was starting to complain, and he interrupted me and said, Rob, do you know what in the world you're doing? He said, if you have a problem with someone, you need to go to that person rather than going to other people about that person. And when you go to other people, rather than going to the person and speaking the truth in love, what you do is you form triangles, and that creates disunity in the body of Christ that you're not even aware of. And I I can't go into it, but i got to tell you, my complaining created a whole lot of disunity. It got really bad. And here's my point. If you're complaining, you are not caring. Friends stab friends in the front. And so do leaders. Now let me go on. You got a guy in a hot air balloon. The wind comes up really strong. Wind, he gets blown off course and he's uh, going and he's going and he realizes he's lost. He sees some, uh, a, a few people on the ground. It's kind of in a rural area. And so he descends and he shouts to a woman below, hey, I'm completely lost. Can you tell me where I am? And she looks up and said, well, you're in a hot air balloon about 30 feet off the ground. And he says to her, well, you must work in information technology. Because what you have told me is technically correct, but it's of no use to anyone. And the woman equal to the man shouted back at him, well, you must be in management because you have no idea where you are, where you're going, and you expect my immediate help, and now suddenly it's my fault. Leaders don't complain and leaders don't blame. Leaders care. Caring means we love. Uh, Caring means uh, we know our people. We treat them with the dignity, as I said, uh, that we are involved in their lives. Uh, I, I love the stories of Jeremiah, Jeremiah and Nehemiah. 
in the Old Testament. They were two exceptional leaders, but they were very different in their gifting. Jeremiah had prophetic gifts. He was a preacher. He was a teacher. Nehemiah, on the other hand, was an administrator. He was a a leader. But both of them were strong. Both of them were tough in a good sense. Both of them were tireless, and they were unbending. And boy, did both of them weep. I mean, they just flat wept for their people. Boy, did they care. Instead of blowing up at people, time after time after time, they laid down their lives for people. Leaders care. So let me sum it this way. A leader has a tough hide and a tender heart. Now let's go on. Not only do leaders care, but leaders have character. Uh, That is, they have integrity. We see this in the second half of verse 2 through verse 3. Let's get this up. Yeah. I want you guys to notice something. There are three contrasts in these two verses. Not because you must, but because you're willing. Uh, not, not because you're greedy, but you're eager, and, and not because you're dominating, you're overbearing, but because you want to be an example. In other words, uh, character and integrity is leading people willingly, eagerly, and desiring to be an example, as an example. Now, do you see what Peter is talking about when he says willingly, eagerly, and as an example? He is talking about the leader's heart. Our motives. What's going on on the inside. And the fact, and this is where I think it's fascinating, that he uses three contrasts means there is always, always a battle going on in the heart of the leader. There's always a battle going on in all of our hearts. So let's take conflict. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's with a friend. Maybe it's in your marriage. None of us live in conflict-free environments. None of us can escape, escape moments of irritation. Frustration, disappointment, uh, disagreement, it just comes with the territory. And so we ask ourselves the question, what is all that about? That conflict, that tension. And I want to suggest it's not merely about poor communication skills or a a misunderstanding about role expectations or different personality traits and on and on. It's also always about something deeper. To illustrate this, turn back a few pages if you have your Bibles. We'll put it up on the screen to James chapter 4, verse 1. James asks the question, this question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And he answers it rhetorically. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill, you explode. You complain, you blame. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. James, why do we have so many fights, so many quarrels? 
It isn't because we're surrounded by difficult people or everybody in the world is difficult. It's because of our desires, the things going on inside us, the fact that our desires battle within us. The word desires here is a strong word. It refers to potent, ruling desires. And what James is saying is you have people problems, conflict problems, because you have a heart problem. I like the way Paul Tripp put it. Look at what he says. Rather than my heart being ruled by God and motivated by God's honor, my heart is ruled by my wants, my needs, and my feelings. If it is, I am always in some kind of conflict with you. When we put ourselves where God alone belongs, conflict always, always results. Now, do you see the point? Leadership is a matter of character. And what Christianity asserts is that character is a matter of your heart. And unless your heart is healthy, your leadership won't be healthy. And instead of being willing and eager And living as an example, you will simply be full of you. And you'll complain, you'll blame. You'll be bossy, you'll be mean, you'll be stubborn. You'll be a garbage collector. Oh, did you hear this? Did you hear that? You see, each and every day, each and every one of us, look for something to set our hopes and our dreams on. We do that each and every day in a bunch of different ways. Each and every day, uh, we look for something that we can uh, uh, derive our happiness and our significance and our identity from. And really, there's only two places we can go in that search. And one is to creation. And if you're looking for something in creation to satisfy your deepest longings for meaning, significance, identity, and purpose, then you will always be disappointed. And sometimes you will be crushingly disappointed. But on the other hand, instead of looking to some aspect of creation, if you look to the creator, you will be on your way down the road to the experience of lasting significance, lasting peace, lasting connect, uh, contentment. Because that's what God does for us in Jesus Christ. And so I wonder, you leaders, really all of you, where are you looking? Where is your heart going? Are you looking to creation or are you looking to the Creator? So leaders care, leaders are aware of their heart, their desires. And now we come to this third one, this crazy one that's not in modern conversations, but it's here in 1 Peter chapter 5, and that is leaders resist the devil. We resist the devil. Look at verse 8. 
Be alert, sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Uh, Resist him. Resist him by standing firm in the faith. Now here, Christianity is making a huge and thoroughly countercultural truth claim. And that is that there is a devil. And you ignore him at your peril. Now, the Bible teaches that Satan is always subservient, always subservient to God. And if you are a Christian, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, then the devil can, may I should say, attack you, but he cannot, he cannot come close to destroying you. But Peter is emphasizing something else as well. He's emphasizing that the devil is frightening, terrifying. He refers to him as a roaring lion. Lion. In other words, the devil, according to the Bible, is a supernatural personal force of enormous evil and power. He would pick up the mountains and crush you if he could. But God won't let him. God would not let him do that. Now, what's so interesting is at the end of this section we're looking at this morning, as we've just seen, Peter immediately goes to the devil. And this is a section that begins about leadership. But in the previous verses, I mean verses 5, 6, and 7, that I'm going to come back to in a minute, Peter warns us about two sins, two sins leaders and all of us struggle with. One is pride, the other is anxiety. And then after talking about pride and anxiety, he immediately says, watch out for the devil. Why? Because over and over, the Bible teaches us that our sin and the work of the devil are bound together. Somebody said, your sin is the piano. Satan is the piano player. The music requires both. If there's no sin, there's no satanic music. If there's no devil, uh, there's not as well. Now, let me illustrate this. Let's say you harbor a grudge. And you've been holding on to it for a long time now. And as a matter of fact, it it hasn't gone away and it is borderline hate. Or maybe you do pornography. Your grudge, your pornography is the piano. Satan is the piano player. And he wants to take your sin and inflame it and create horrible music, horrible music uh, flowing out of your life. Music, and here's the language, music that could potentially devour you and people around you. And so what, Peter, do we do? 
And the answer is at the beginning of verse 9. We resist him. And we stand firm in the faith. In other words, we cling to Jesus. It's your faith in the charity of a bleeding Savior. It's your faith in Jesus Christ who died for your sins on the cross, who lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, was raised perfectly from the dead. And the moment you trust Jesus and trust him as your Savior, the New Testament tells us you are made a new creature in Christ and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. As a matter of fact, and get this, the Bible teaches all three persons of the Trinity are in you the moment you come to Christ. And that's permanent. And it will never change. And it is... The fact that you are a new creature, the fact that you have this union with Christ, that you're married to Christ, that you're adopted into Jesus' family, that breaks the power of sin in your life. It breaks the power of the devil. It doesn't eradicate it. It's a process. And so Peter says, resist him by clinging to Jesus. By falling more and more in love with Jesus. You see, you will only resist the devil to the extent you cling by faith to the Savior. You stand on the promises, the work of Jesus Christ. There's a story about a pirate who wanted to retire. But after years on the oceans, he suffered all sorts of physical things. He had a wooden leg. He had a hook for a hand. He had a patch over his eye because he had lost his eye. And the pirate, this pirate, wanted to collect disability insurance. So as all pirates do, he sat down with his disability insurance agent. And the agent said, well, what in the world happened to your leg? And the pirate said, well, matey, a storm came out of nowhere. The boom hit me on the deck knocked me into the ocean, and a shark got my leg. Hmm. Well, what happened to your hand? Well, matey, believe it or not, the exact same thing happened. A shark got my hand. Okay? What about your eye? Well, that was a little different, matey. I was lying up top, and a seagull flew over, did his duty, and some of it got in my eye. And the wise agent said, well, that wouldn't have caused blindness. And the pirate said, well, maybe it was the first day I got my hook. Okay, let that sink in. You with me? Okay, this becomes important because we haven't talked about it yet. Look at the beginning of verse 8. What does Peter say? He says, man, be alert. Be of sober mind. In other words, what Peter is saying, do not forget ultimate reality. You may not be able to see the devil, but he is real. And failing to resist the devil is like ignoring ultimate reality. It's like scratching your eye with a hook. Be alert. 
take this leaders very, very seriously. The world doesn't talk about it. But to be all God wants you to be, to maximize your gifts and your abilities, you understand ultimate reality. Let me go on to the fourth trait. Leaders fight their pride. Not the pride of other people, but our own pride. Notice at the end of verse 5, in quoting this proverb, chapter 3 and verse 34, Peter says God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, who can estimate the lives, the cultures, the corporations, the marriages that have been destroyed by pride? Dealing with pride in this context is one of the primary ways you resist the devil. It's you saying, okay, I have a pride problem. I'm going to own it. I'm going to face it. I'm going to get the input of others. I'm frankly going to talk about it in my life group. What is pride? Pride is resistance to the grace of God. It's keeping it at a distance. You have a pride issue when you ignore God in any given moment. I can handle this. I, I, I can do this on my uh, own. Now hear me, pride doesn't negate competence. It smears it. It poisons it. It tarnishes it. And boy, will that happen in your life. So we fight our pride, Peter is saying. I mean, think about the stories in, or the story in the Old Testament book of Daniel. The great king, one of the greatest kings in the uh, history of the ancient Near East, Nebuchadnezzar, is out on his porch, his balcony. He's looking at all the construction projects that have been completed in the great city of Babylon. And he says, look, he says out loud, look at what I have done with the strength of my might. Look what I have done uh, for my glorious majesty. And the story unfolds, and God supernaturally humbles him. God opposes the proud. But pride in our lives takes two different forms. First of all, uh, we, um, we reject the grace of God because we think we don't need it. We think we're better. We think we can manage life on our own. So we reject the grace of God uh, because we just don't need it. But the other form of pride, in contrast, is we also resist the grace of God, but it's not because we think we're so great, it's because we think we're so bad, we think we're so inferior, we think we're so guilty, and we cannot get over the past. So we continue to walk through life backwards. And what I want you to understand is superiority and inferiority complexes are both forms of pride. It's all about you. It's all about you managing your assets. 
and leaders, all of us as Christians, fight pride. P- Peter says God opposes it. God opposes the proud. So let me go on, and I'll finish with this. The fifth trait, the fifth aspect of leadership, according to this vision here, just in these verses of First Peter, and that is, in addition to fighting pride, we fight anxiety. Now, this is verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And then he talks immediately about the devil. In other words, one of the main ways you resist the devil is not just by fighting pride, but it's also by fighting, resisting your anxiety. Why? Uh, And here I'm speaking to you leaders. If you are a leader, what does anxiety do in your life? Man, it makes you timid. It makes you insecure. It it makes you um, irritable indecisive. You've got all this churning going on inside. Now, I want to say this gently. We tend to think that anxiety isn't a sin. I'm just a worrier. But it is. It's a form of fear And over and over, the Bible commands, do not fear. Now, speaking personally, I wish I could say that I'm never anxious, but I can't. I wish I could say I never lose sleep because I'm worrying, but that happens way too often in my life. I wish I could say that look at me, I always have a sense of God's presence. I never have moments where I'm wondering, where in the world are you, God? But I can't say that. It's a regular part of my experience. Even though I know the Bible reasonably well, just as I battle pride I battle anxiety. And we all do. You see, if pride is resisting the grace of God, anxiety is functionally denying the sovereignty of God. But the Bible says God works all things, all things together for good. The Bible tells us that God is always faithful, always, always loving, that he never grows weary, that he never forgets, that he never loses sight of us, that he never stops loving, that he never stops forgiving, that he never stops blessing his people. Anxiety denies that. It's a frontal assault on the sovereignty of God. Somebody said it's like stabbing God in his goodness in the chest. It's an assault. I I don't much like it 
when somebody mistrusts me or questions, you know, my judgment, you know, among my kids or, or people I work with or, 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 or friends. Uh, most of us don't like it when people mistrust us, a spouse. But why in the world do we think it's okay to mistrust God? Wouldn't God feel the same way? God says to us in the Bible, I love you so much, I tore my son to shreds for you. Why are you so anxious? So arrogant. So what are we to do? And I'll conclude with this. Uh, The gospel, the good news of the gospel is that we can't solve these problems on our own. We cannot fix ourselves. Uh, We can't find the power and the wisdom to resist Satan, to to cleanse our lives of pride, to, to deliver ourselves from anxiety. We cannot do that on our own. I want you to understand that. But the gospel tells us when we look away from ourselves and we look to Jesus, in other words, we stand firm in the faith. We begin to move down the road toward resisting uh, Satan, pride, and anxiety as the Holy Spirit fills us and uh, Jesus continues to forgive us. And until our last breath, we will always battle. We will always battle with what these desires of our heart. But to the extent you and I cling to Jesus, we look away. We find hope. So what does leadership look like according to Christianity? You care. You pay attention to your heart. You resist the devil, your pride, and your anxiety. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for how practical and specific the Bible is. How much the Bible has to say on a subject like leadership. Would you give us ears to hear Would you speak to us by your Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen.